Welcome back to the Brave Marriage Podcast, a podcast for couples and communities who want to grow as individuals, do marriage with intention, and live mutually empowered, purposeful lives. If you're just joining us, I'm Kinsey, an LMFT who's passionate about helping couples discover mutuality in Christian marriage, that we might grow healthier individually and together, not only as couples, but also as the body of Christ. In season two, our theme is marriage, mutuality, and gender roles, and over the next two episodes, we are talking about complementarianism and egalitarianism. If you're unfamiliar with these two terms, these are two distinct approaches to the way Christians have come to define their positions, theologically, on the relationship between males and females in the 20th century as it relates to equality, authority, leadership, and roles in marriage and ministry. And why I want to define these two positions at this point is because they carry very different implications for what actually gets played out between husbands and wives in marriage and for what actually takes place in the church between men and women. In the summer of 2018, right as I launched this podcast, I was still on social media at the time and taking questions to address on the podcast. And immediately from the very beginning, someone asked, complementarian or egalitarian? kind of a which is better type question. Now, at the time, I thought I had a pretty good grasp on both, but not a strong position on either. With complementarianism, I'd read books from that perspective since high school, and I studied at the Focus Leadership Institute, where I read pretty much the handbook on complementarianism, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And then I attended a mega church and two denominational churches that supported a complementarian view, but without explicitly using that term. And when you live somewhere where complementarianism is baked into the culture and traditional gender roles are pretty widely accepted, you don't really see it as an issue to take up because you don't really see it from any other perspective at all. At least I didn't at the time. Which is funny to me now, because I grew up in a church that would say it holds egalitarian views, and I also attended a Wesleyan university and seminary. But like the complementarian churches I attended, the church I grew up in and the ones I've attended since didn't explicitly use that term to describe their positions either. (laughs) So on the surface, it seemed like either way is good, whatever couples prefer, I'm going to be Switzerland on this question. My only desire for the podcast is to share the idea of mutuality in marriage and mutual flourishing, this idea that men and women are created equal and designed as marriage partners to reflect the image of God and the relationship between Christ and his bride by way of intimacy and mutual love, respect, submission, and empowerment between spouses. But what began to dawn on me was that what we talk about here is so new to so many couples. Some couples, and solid couples, were starting to share with me that no one had ever painted a picture for them in the church of mutual flourishing or of making room for each other in marriage and ministry, and it had begun to free both of them in different ways. So the complementarian-egalitarian question is one that I've developed a lot of passion around the longer I've been doing this. Today, we're going to address the complementarian perspective, and here's what I want to say first. I believe that at the end of the day, Christ's grace prevails and his transforming love for us is stronger than our limited understanding. And I believe that the Holy Spirit can do whatever he wants and whomever he wants and turn marriages around and use couples, complementarians and egalitarians alike for his glory. Having said that, I also think it's appropriate 
to ask those in the church as a Christian and as a marriage counselor to take a look at what we're actually saying, what we're actually teaching, and how that's actually affecting couples in our congregations and communities. I think it certainly could do us good to take a look at both positions to see how we, the body of Christ, can do the most good and the least harm to couples and families in our congregations and in our care. So as I talk about complementarianism today, I'm not sure where you land on the issue, how much you know about the issue. And so I'm asking for your understanding, for your openness to hear its history, to try and understand what's going on behind the scenes, which I'll do my best to explain given my study, and to have compassion for the people of God as we take a look together. Okay, so starting with complementarianism. Complementarianism is the belief that men and women are created equal in spiritual worth and dignity, but different in spiritual role and function. In the home, men are to lead and women are to help. In the church, men are to lead from the pulpit, and both men and women are to submit to pastoral leadership, to be inspired by their leadership to fulfill their complementary ministries. But for the purpose of this podcast, which pertains to marriage, we'll limit our conversation to the role of husbands and wives. In a complementarian family, there's a belief in the general premise of male headship and female submission. As Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood states on page 63, biblical headship for the husband is the divine calling to take primary responsibility for Christ-like servant leadership, protection, and provision in the home. Biblical submission for the wife is the divine calling to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. Complementarians also have varying views on the degree to which women should submit to all men or just to their husbands and pastors, but the official statement from the handbook is, Ephesians 5.22, Titus 2.5, and 1 Peter 3.1 exhort wives to be subject to your own husbands. This term, your own, shows that the relationship of leadership and submission between a woman and her husband should be different from the relationship of leadership and submission that she may have with men in general. So complementarianism is the majority view in evangelical Christianity today, and they tend to emphasize the harmony displayed through complementary roles, as outlined by Paul in Ephesians 5. It's taught in many churches to help couples understand their male and female roles, purpose, and the meaning of Christian marriage. Now, here's the thing. I think if Christians were to really focus, meditate on the relationship between Christ and his bride, or if we were to prioritize the centrality of Christ and his character as evidenced in the Gospels, I think most of us would agree that the marriage relationship between men and women would be a beautiful thing to behold. But that's not what the complementarian camp did or focused on in the beginning, the beginning being the 1980s. In fact, in their first official position paper, what's known as the Danvers Statement, not once is Jesus or any of the four Gospels cited in the biblical references given to support the position. Instead, complementarianism began with a lot of inherent contradictions, pointing to what's biblical in some ways, but exposing their cultural biases in others. Understandably, much of this plays out in my office, and we'll spend the next bit of the episode taking a look at some of those mixed messages and trying to understand all of the different competing components. 
And so again, hear me on this. If you identify as a complementarian, what I'm asking is for you to understand how complementarianism began and what it's led to, maybe more than how you might identify your own beliefs on marriage and ministry. So you might be surprised to learn that the term complementarian was created in 1988. That's 33 years ago. (laughs) It was a term invented to draw attention to the male and female complementarity embedded in the position and away from the hierarchy and patriarchy built into the perspective. That's not how the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood would say it. But in my research, it seems that because of the women's movement, the term Christian patriarchy had a bit of a PR problem. And a small group of evangelicals were looking to nail down a thesis of human sexuality, specifically of biblical manhood and masculinity, and biblical womanhood and femininity. And so they chose the term complementarian to emphasize the harmony between men and women in marriage and ministry when played out in their respective roles as head and helper. And so again, the emphasis was really, we want to define ourselves as valuing the complementarity of male and female and helping people see the harmony more than the hierarchy. And so to understand this position from the beginning, I want you to put yourself in their shoes for a second. We've already talked a little bit about the feminist movement, the sexual revolution, civil rights, and women's rights in previous episodes, and this was the rising tide that... Wayne Grudem, John Piper, and others were seeking to address in their formation of a formal position on biblical sexuality. And to some degree, I can understand and empathize with that desire. I grew up in a small church in the 1990s with many older couples who were parenting children in the 70s and 80s. And I remember one specific couple's disdain for sex, drugs, rock and roll, (laughs) and anything remotely feminist. Because having had children negatively impacted by some of the things that came out of those movements, they believed that women should be protected from the world, finding their place in the home and in the pews, and that men should step up, finding their place at home and at work. So I can appreciate that parental instinct to protect. But what society was offering and modeling at that time wasn't all bad. The women's rights movement offered an articulation of what many women were already experiencing, and this gave Christian women a chance to envision themselves as living into all they were made to be, not just into who they were always told to be. So as you can imagine, many in conservative Christian circles like mine were feeling anxious, concerned, fearful, even potentially displaced should they fail to take back the Christian culture wars for God. To use some of the language from these books— This group was truly worried about secular feminism infecting the church and Christians being swayed to believe things they deemed antithetical to scripture. And given the past few years for us, I think we can all appreciate the uncertainty, the unknown, as to what the future would look like. So I want us to have some compassion for where they were at the time. You know, so close to culture change, and yet so far away from being able to observe the effects of what they proposed at the time as a better future for Christian marriages and families. And that's the problem, isn't it? That any of us can be genuinely worried and concerned about something, desiring to make change for the better, and at the very same time, we can have blind spots that lead us to engage in efforts that are well-intentioned but turn out to be more harmful than helpful. This group in the late 80s was unable to hold faith and culture in tension, 
which led to a doubling down of their rather homogenous perspective without really listening to the other side with an open mind and heart. And so in an effort to nail down a correct position, this group of 25 evangelicals wrote and signed what's known as the Danvers Statement. From there, the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, which was formed in 1987, began distributing the publication. And then, what I've heard referred to as the Blue Bible, was written in 1991, entitled Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, A Response to Evangelical Feminism. So in 1988, it was decided that the term complementarian would be used to describe the position. Now, this might be getting into the weeds a little bit, but I'm including it because I think it's worth taking a look at the official complementarian position to understand the differences between what views are held on paper versus what gets played out in practice when couples, churches, and communities firmly hold this view. Starting with the Danvers Statement, written in December of 1987, it includes two sections, its rationale for existence and biblical affirmations outlining what complementarians believe. The rationale section starts, We have been moved in our purpose by the following contemporary developments which we observe with deep concern. And then it lists 10 points outlining their concerns. In summary, the confusion in our culture regarding the differences between masculinity and femininity, the subsequent unraveling of marriages from their perspective, the ambivalence of women toward motherhood, homemaking, and women's ministries, the increase of pornography and the distortion of human sexuality, an increase in physical and emotional abuse in the family, the promotion of egalitarianism leading to distortions in the harmony between husbands as loving and humble leaders and wives as intelligent yet willing followers. These are their words. An increase of women in church leadership, and finally, the threat to biblical authority as they saw it, by egalitarian theologians and scholars who were working on more accurate translations of the Greek and Hebrew into English, and who were seeking to understand the Bible as it was written and intended, interpreting each book not with a fundamental Western lens, but with a contextual Middle Eastern lens. Okay, so this describes the concerns they were having in the late 80s, which we've talked about already, and there are a few earlier points of rationale upon which egalitarian Christians would also affirm as problematic. But of course, since the latter half of their concern was solely around egalitarian Christians, they would obviously differ on those points. In the affirmation section, we'll have to break this down a bit more, but it begins with, based on our understanding of biblical teachings, we affirm the following. There are 10 bullet points, but I've lumped some together for the sake of time. The first idea is that man and woman are created in God's image, equal yet distinctly different in the created order per their God-ordained masculine and feminine roles. And here are those roles, according to Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. On page 41, At the heart of mature masculinity is a sense of benevolent responsibility to lead, provide for, and protect women in ways appropriate to man's differing relationships. At the heart of mature femininity is a freeing disposition to affirm, receive, and nurture strength and leadership from worthy men in ways appropriate to a woman's differing relationships. And then in chapter 3, a man, just by virtue of his manhood, is called to lead for God. A woman, just by virtue of her womanhood, is called to help for God. The second idea is that the Old and New Testaments affirm God-ordained male headship in the home and in the church. So they see male headship as a biblical prescriptive, 
whereas egalitarians would see male headship as purely descriptive. The third idea is that Adam's headship over Eve was inherent in creation, not a consequence of sin or the fall. They believe it was the fall that led to both passivity and abuse of power in men, and it was the fall that led women to both servility, which is the excessive pleasing of men and others, and the usurping of male authority. This point is really important. Everything that complementarians believe flow out of their presupposition that male headship is built into the created order, that it's reflected in the Trinity with the subordination of the Son to the Father, that when Paul says the husband is the head of the wife, that he means the husband is to lead, protect, and provide, and that when God delivers the curse to the man, woman, and serpent, that God is saying, Eve, your desire will be to ruin, destroy, and usurp your husband's authority. But in my good and gracious plan for you, Eve, Adam will rule over you. I remember being taught this at Focus on the Family in my gender identity and leadership class, where we read Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And in 21 years of being a Christian up to that point, I had never heard this particular exegesis of God's curse to Eve, that her heart would be somehow evil toward her husband, but that because of Christ's redemption, she would be able to be free from that posture and that Adam would rule over her with love. That was also a time when the English Standard Version read, and your desire shall be for your husband, in Genesis 3.16, so it took some explanation by our teachers as to how they arrived there. So it was before the English Standard Version changed that verse to, and your desire shall be contrary to your husband, trying to make that interpretation more obvious. But then there was a lot of backlash toward that change, and so the ESV backtracked because so many scholars were outraged about their trying to make it a permanent revision. Anyway, I'm getting off on a tangent. So the fourth idea was that no earthly submission should follow human authority into sin, a point upon which complementarians and egalitarians would agree. The fifth idea was that Christ came to reverse the curse of gender role confusion and confusion around the created order, that because of our redemption in Christ, husbands should aim to forsake harsh and selfish leadership, while wives should aim to forsake resistance to their husband's authority. Again, their words. In Christ, husbands should grow in love and care for their wives, while wives should grow in willing, joyful submission. Now, this point comes directly from Ephesians 5, where Paul puts a twist on the ancient household codes. But whereas egalitarians tend to start with Ephesians 5.21, with the call to the church to mutually submit to one another in love, complementarians tend to start with Ephesians 5.22, with the call for wives to submit to their husbands. And the sixth idea, as I've grouped some of these together— is that men and women who feel called to lead or pastor should never use their, quote, heartfelt sense of call to ministry as a reason to go against Paul's prescription for godly men to lead, except in places outside the reach of indigenous evangelism. In other words, in places where missionaries have not yet gone and established a Christian presence, the Danvers statement allows that no man or woman who feels a passion from God to make his grace known in word and deed need ever live without a fulfilling ministry for the glory of God and the good of this fallen world. So if a people group is unreached, one sex doesn't matter in the delivery of the gospel because the gospel matters too much to limit the sharing of it on the basis of sex. However, in establishing Christianity as a religious presence in that unreached people group, 
male and female missionaries are expected to teach complementarianism, organizing families and church communities accordingly. So by now, I hope you're beginning to see some of the internal contradictions. And again, I want you to hear me on this because even though I've shifted the neutrality of my position, I do want to be fair to the complementarian position and their commitment to scripture as they understand it. They read it in the tradition of Christian fundamentalism and often with commentary or statements like these from scholars they trust. And for a lot of people, especially in my context of small-town Christian America, complementarianism makes sense. Gender roles and gender bias often already exist and are often unexamined. There's nothing really new there, except for those who are genuinely committed to Christ to turn from their selfish ways and love each other like Jesus. And so I believe that for a lot of complementarians, their desire to know truth and live by it is genuine and pure. But here's the problem. In John 8, 31 and 32, Jesus said to the Jews, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That's not actually the problem. (laughs) This is. I don't see a lot of freedom coming from complementarian teaching or practice. Let me start with complementarian teaching. In my opinion, complementarianism has led to more confusion than clarity for couples. Because first of all, both complementarians and egalitarians affirm the complementarity between men and women as two distinct genders uniquely yet together reflecting the image of God. If you've never heard that before, or if you've been taught something different, which is common, it's true, and I've linked an article in the full transcript on my website by Scott McKnight. Second of all, in my opinion, complementarianism, as defined in 1988, has intentionally or unintentionally, I don't know which one, created a bait-and-switch, whereby what is offered on the attractive surface isn't all that couples are getting when they buy into the product. It's like the advertising of the product turns out to be very different from what couples expect and what they receive when they unbox the whole package. Here are some examples of the confusing messages, mincing of words, and contradictions built into the book, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. On page 15, if one word must be used to describe our position, we prefer the term complementarian, since it suggests both equality and beneficial differences between men and women. We are uncomfortable with the term traditionalist because it implies an unwillingness to let scripture challenge traditional patterns of behavior. And we certainly reject the term hierarchicalist because it overemphasizes structured authority while giving no suggestion of equality or the beauty of mutual interdependence. In other words, the term complementarian was chosen because it's more comfortable and palatable. And at the time, at least it seems, they hoped to be open to letting scripture challenge tradition. They also preferred complementarian to hierarchicalist even though that name was thrown into the mix as an option because they genuinely wanted to emphasize equality and interdependence while minimizing the structured authority still built into it. And then they write on page 54, While I am not keen on hierarchy and patriarchy as terms describing the man-woman relationship in Scripture, Genesis 2 and Ephesians 5 continue to convince me that the man-woman relationship is intrinsically non-reversible. By this I mean that other things being equal, 
A situation in which a female boss has a male secretary, or a marriage in which the woman, as we say, wears the trousers, will put more strain on the humanity of both partners than if it were the other way around. This is part of the reality of creation, a given fact that nothing will change. And so you see, in this framing, there's no concept of true mutuality. There's only male leadership over women, or what they fear, which is female leadership over men. There's not even a frame there for truly equal partnership. And so, to translate what the author is saying, while the writer doesn't like thinking of his position in terms of hierarchy or patriarchy, he cannot say in good conscience that they are not a part of his position, based on his reading of Genesis 2 and Ephesians 5, paired with his fear of matriarchy or of role reversal, he concludes that patriarchy is a fact of creation, that men and women are equal, except on the basis of personhood, sex, and spiritual authority. Can you see why this would cause someone to have to do a little bit of mental gymnastics if they really stop to question it? And there are 690 pages of this book, taking time to exegete every related passage and answering every possible question that might come up about complementarianism. So if you're interested, you can find that in the full transcript as well. But I remember reading the book in college and thinking, my goodness, I'm so glad these guys took the time to form a position for me and to reason through all of these questions because it seems so complicated and complex. Now, this was also aided by cultural and Christian forces that led me a little bit to believe as a woman to distrust my own intelligence. And so it became easy to just trust theirs and not question. I took them at their word and considered all the things that they were saying as just part of playing my role in the kingdom of God. They even listed out appropriate roles for women, and I thought, okay, I see my role on there, so I'm good. <laughs> and so it's all of these forces working together that make complementarianism attractive and believable to both sexes, but why when you begin to question it, it's so confusing to so many people, especially when you've grown up in it or been immersed in it. But I want to point out, this is not a healthy way for humans to develop. To be told you have to trust someone else outside of you as to whether or not you're in tune with the Holy Spirit, or unless you're abiding by what we say, you're not truly a Christian or living out your godly role as a husband or wife. And some of the text, as you get into it, it's a bit crazy-making. It's a little bit gaslighting. For example, in 2012, Mary Cassian wrote an article entitled Complementarianism for Dummies to try and clarify the position. She wrote, I was at the meeting 25 years ago where the word complementarianism was chosen, so I think I have a good grasp on the word's definition. It's about complementing, not complementing so with an E versus an I. It's not about perpetuating a 1950s stereotype that's called traditionalism. It's not about one sex being more privileged than the other. That's called hierarchicalism. It's not about guys having the right to rule over and oppress. That's called patriarchalism. It's about male and female reflecting complementary truths about Jesus. Okay, but again, given the text we've previously covered, just because the term complementarian was the one chosen to represent the group's predominant value doesn't mean those things aren't present in the position itself. Remember from our previous episodes, 
patriarchy has played out predominantly in culture since the beginning of civilization, as has the practice of men as heads of households. The inferiority of the female sex has been an idea forwarded throughout history. Take St. Augustine, for example, who wrote in the 4th century. It is the natural order among people that women serve their husbands, because the justice of this lies in the lesser serves the greater. This is the natural justice, that the weaker brain serves the stronger. Take John Calvin, for example, who wrote in the 16th century, Let the woman be satisfied with her state of subjection, and not take it amiss that she is made inferior to the more distinguished sex. In the 18th and 19th centuries, the idea of complementarity took root to maintain social order and social stability as the love-based marriage emerged. And finally, in the 20th century, this same blend of scripture and sexism has been promoted through complementarian teaching. Another quote from the book, Manhood and womanhood as such are now seen as irrelevant factors in determining fitness for leadership. When the Bible teaches that men and women fulfill different roles in relation to each other, charging man with a unique leadership role, it bases this differentiation not on temporary cultural norms, but on permanent facts of creation. So again, it's this Darwinian view that it's the natural order, that there's something superior about the male sex. And not just Darwin, I mean, this goes all the way back to Aristotle. But anyway, I'm just wanting you to see the things that are mixed in with some truths to really identify what is it that we're believing about ourselves as men and women, and how is this affecting our marriages, our children, who we're passing these things on to in our communities. Complementarian teaching is pervasive. It shows up all over the internet, on social media, and it does so without our necessarily knowing it. You know, not everyone is aware that the top Christian resources that come up when you search something on the internet are complementarian, like the Gospel Coalition, gotquestions.org, Crossway, who publishes the English Standard Version of the Bible, by the way. Complementarian teaching shows up in so many marriage and parenting books and podcasts, and it's a different message than purely mutuality in marriage. And on top of that, more and more, Complementarianism's own proponents are identifying the presence of hierarchy, patriarchy, paternalism, subordination, and benevolent sexism as built into the position. And these are all terms of those who've written on the issue, whose books and articles I've linked in the full transcript on the website. And finally today, I want to cover complementarianism in practice, because this is where I really, this is why I've done so much research. This is why I get so fired up about this issue. I've worked with a lot of young couples on both sides of the complementarianism and egalitarianism spectrum. But in my work with couples middle-aged and older, I've predominantly worked with couples who've practiced complementarianism in its outworkings for 20 to 30 years, who are frustrated who are seeing, this is not working, this has not worked, we are halfway through a lifetime together and no better at resolving conflict, sharing decisions, figuring out our sex life, figuring out how to be happy together, or knowing what to do with our shame, our resentment, guilt, hostility, and lack of emotional intimacy with one another. Now, this isn't every couple, and as I've said before, you know, there are some people who identify as complementarian, but by the grace of God, in practice, they've maneuvered around this in their marriages. 
It's like they've learned to stick to the Ephesians 5 passage, but base their love and respect for each other on Jesus. They've intuitively found healthier ways to relate. And so I've known plenty of couples who call themselves complementarian, you might be one of those, who say they hold complementarian beliefs, but in actuality, the way they live is quite egalitarian. (laughs) Thus, they're happier, more intimate, and freer than couples who try to apply biblical manhood and womanhood rigidly to their relationships. Why? Because hierarchy and predetermined marriage, gender, and ministry roles set couples up for resentment, distance, isolation, inauthenticity, and power struggle with one another. Research backs this up too, by the way, and it has since the 1980s. When David Olson was doing his research that's now encompassed in the Prepare and Rich curriculum, he found that couples who perceive their relationship as egalitarian were qualitatively happier. 81% compared to 19% who reported being unhappy. Strikingly, when both husbands and wives abided by traditional roles, 18% reported being happy compared to 82% of couples who reported being unhappy. In 2002, Jennifer Finlayson Fife found that women who didn't subscribe to traditional gender ideologies or who said they did but actually didn't in the way they organized their relationships, were healthier and freer in their sexual agency than those who practiced traditional hierarchical roles. And in 2006, Heather Helms did a study that concluded that spouses who followed stereotyped gender roles tend to have marriages that are reportedly less satisfying and happy than couples with more egalitarian roles. So the research is there, is being affirmed over time, and I'm wondering why we're not paying attention to this. So I just, I want to leave you with what I'm seeing in my practice and why I'm so passionate about this topic and why I care about educating couples on what's healthy and leads to wholeness. I give you these points too because I hope it can help you see what's going on in your congregations and communities and maybe your own marriage that you're not aware of, that you haven't been able to put a name to. And my hope is that in doing so, it will help you think about the way that you're reading scripture and teaching scripture and working on your own marriage and helping others. First, it seems like in the complementarian view, gender roles are sometimes emphasized over Jesus. And the prescriptions feel untrue to partners based on their strengths and personalities. They feel unbalanced based on their workloads between work and home. And they feel unchristlike in that one or both partners is more concerned with trying to play a certain part than with actually being able to focus on loving their partner and trying to connect on an intimate level rather than on a role-based one. Number two, here's what I'm seeing in Christian men. Christian men are experiencing suffocating amounts of pressure not only in their expectations for themselves, but in the shame they feel when they can't or don't measure up to one of these complementarian standards. For example, a husband might lose a job, or another might struggle with mental illness, or another is overworked and burnout, but he doesn't have any sort of frame in which to put these things that says, you're okay, we'll be okay, we will figure this out together. Instead, he says to himself, because of what he's been taught, I should be better than this. I'm ashamed and embarrassed. I'm weak. I'm not holding up my side as a man. I just need to man up here. All of which make the pressure worse, not better, by the way. Oh, and sometimes 
Not always, but sometimes the church is reinforcing this shame-based message, as is his wife. Because guess what? They're both buying into what they've heard at church or through unhealthy Christian teaching on the internet or in podcasts. Men in this framing are taught that they're weak and unworthy when really they're just human. And as the Apostle James would say, brothers and sisters, this ought not to be. There ought to be kindness and grace and support built into our teachings so that when life inevitably happens and roles inevitably shift, men's self-esteem and self-respect don't plummet, leaving him to be less able to do that which he desires to do for his wife and family. And number three, this is what I see among Christian women. Christian women are experiencing loads of guilt and resentment as they blame their partners for not living up to the unrealistic expectations placed on Christian men in complementarianism, and then the guilt comes for disrespecting their husbands and getting angry with them for reasons perpetuated by complementarian views themselves. Do you see how this could be a crazy-making cycle for wives and couples? Because not only does she cycle through thoughts of, he makes me so angry, but I just need to love and respect him better. She also sees herself as having no sense of inner stability or strength. Why? Because she's been taught that her stability and strength lies in her husband, not in herself and her own relationship to God. Again, this isn't every teaching, but these are the effects that I see. That if she exhibits strength, she's doing it wrong. She believes she needs to somehow manipulate herself or exert her sacred influence to get her partner to become who she wants him to be, which is who she's been told he's supposed to be in the complementarian view. But like her husband, she's a human too. So of course she has agency and personhood. Those are God's gifts to her just like her husband. But either she won't recognize her agency in the marriage, winding up in a really underdeveloped state for an adult woman, or she'll subconsciously use her agency in unhealthy ways to try and fit herself or her husband into a mold that doesn't likely fit or is just plain unhealthy. So here, we need teaching church that encourages Christian women, wives, and mothers, men, husbands, and fathers to be people who are learning to grow up into Christ, who is the head, not to be stunted in their growth by leaning too heavily on husbands, who were not made to be lords, or by relying too much on self to provide for their wives and families. Okay, I've got to cut myself off. (laughs) There's so much more that I could say about this, but we'll have to stop here. Feel free to connect and let me know your questions, considerations, all of these types of things, especially if you're in church leadership or if you work with couples or men and women, I would be more than happy to consult with you about how to more effectively help the couples you serve, that we both serve in complementary ways. I'm not on social media, but you can find my website in the show notes and my email and contact form from there. Thank you so much for being here. I'm Kinsey Dzinski. Podcast editing is by Evan Dzinski. Music is by John Tibbs. Have a great couple of weeks, and I will talk to you again soon. Love is not about Love is not a bond Love is just as fragile as it is